happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 199 on November 25th, 2020. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana campus here in Missoula, Montana. And joining me this evening, as always, Good evening, Dr. West Fryer. How are you tonight, sir? Well, good evening, Jason. I'm glad to be joining you on this Thanksgiving week and uh, been enjoying the week off of school. This is a, a week to count blessings in many ways. And uh, yeah, amidst the rising COVID numbers and craziness, yes. uh, hey, it's nice to, nice to have a break. So we are going to, I hopefully, um, what am I trying to say? I'm a little distracted tonight. So why don't you tell us what's going on? <laughs> sure. Well, uh, tonight we're going to take a look at some news. And I would say usually this week is a slower news week, but there are a couple interesting things going on that I think we can certainly talk about. And I also think it might be useful to talk about some things in context of this week, which we can get to a little bit down the road. But you can always take a look at our links, what what, what our source material is by going to edtechsr.com slash links. And there you'll go to our gazillion page Google Doc. Maybe we should consider retiring this doc and maybe starting with a fresh one uh, after episode 200. But uh, you can always see what we didn't talk about in any given week and also take a look at uh, the source articles of the stuff that we're talking about. Tonight, we will talk a little bit about Black Friday and Cyber Monday and maybe a little bit about what the Friar and Knife for James households will be doing uh, with that particular version of the holiday. Um, I want to talk a little bit about connectivity. Uh, I believe, Wes, you're on Comcast, right? Uh, Cox, actually. Oh, okay. Well, then uh, uh, data caps aren't coming to you, but I do want well, to talk about we, data caps. We have them. We have them. So I can oh. speak to it. Well, there you go. Been, yeah. Well, well, I can I can chime in because we're limited. Sure. So. So uh, we'll talk about data caps tonight, uh, Google, Apple News, uh, security and privacy news, some web development news. Uh, I think we'll get to it tonight. We have some advice to share with you about uh, home IT stuff, especially as it relates to connectivity at home. And then, of course, our geeks of the week. And I guess I'll start us off tonight by talking a little bit about uh, Black Friday and Cyber Monday. So obviously this year, very different because I doubt there will be a lot of people uh, lining up at stores at 5 a.m. on Friday. Not necessarily because I think some people wouldn't to get a good deal, and I will say, unfortunately, to uh, attach to that comment, but um, a lot of retailers have changed the nature of their Black Friday sales this year, and probably Cyber Monday, which is the traditional uh, Monday after Black Friday, where a lot of online retailers offer su substantial discounts. I think that's going to be a bigger factor this year, and I've seen some survey data that most people plan on doing the, at least the majority if not all their shopping um, online this year. And um, uh, I would make just two comments based on my history with this. Uh, it's been a long time since I got up early in the morning on Friday morning to try to go get a discount, in part because I wouldn't say it's necessarily fake, but a lot of times they'll have doorbuster deals that are limited to 10 or 20 or 50 or even 100. And that Unfortunately, I don't want to wait for hours and hours and hours, in some cases overnight, to save you know, money on X, Y, and Z. And so I usually take a look at the online deals. But I want to share two things. 
The first one is that if you are interested at all in the Amazon universe, then this is the week to buy their stuff. The lowest prices every year. They sometimes will have individual items go on better sale than during the Black Friday, Cyber Monday deals. But uh, if you want to buy a Fire TV, a Fire tablet, if you want to buy an Echo speaker, um, any of the the Amazon branded stuff, then this is the week to do it because it's usually at a big discount. And I'll talk about in a moment. I actually took advantage of one of those discounts earlier this week for a little super nerdy project that I'm going to be taking on this weekend that I'll share at the Geek of the Week later. And then I want to share one other kind of unbelievable price of something. Um, there's usually a great piece of hardware that ends up on sale uh, each year. And like last year, I did buy a Pixel Slate tablet during this sale last year because it was like half the price of, of what it would have been otherwise. I am working really hard. I do not need another anything, uh, uh, a big picture, little picture, especially since that I will be likely in the early uh, part of 2021 picking up a, a new MacBook Pro. But uh, there is one Chromebook that's on Best Buy right now that's at an unbelievably low price, especially in light of the hardware. And again, not not buying this, but I wanted to highlight it because it's super nice. This is the uh, 2020 HP 2-in-1 touchscreen Chromebook. Um, it, it's an all-metal design, and it's down to $379, which is down from $629. The reason why I mention this is because I've actually played with one of these. Uh, we adopted a couple of these for some uh, temporary part-time staff that we added to our organization earlier this year and needed to buy laptops so they could do some field work for my, my organization. And we deferred to these Chromebooks because we've had really great luck with our field staff with Chromebooks. And as I've talked about in the past, you know, one of the reasons why Chrome OS gets a bad name is because oftentimes it's rolled out with really low end hardware that I don't think is a very good user experience. But for $379, you can pick up this HP Chromebook. It has a 14 inch screen, 1080p screen. It's touch screen convertible. So it flips all around and goes into different geometries, has a, a 10th generation i3 trip, eight gigs of RAM and 64 gigs of flash memory. Um, and it's an all metal design. So it has a real uh, kind of MacBook uh, Pro feel to it. And I love the hardware. It's so nice. And as it turns out um, that uh, I played with one of these and I would highly recommend it. And 379 is an unbelievable price uh, for that. So if you're looking for a Chromebook, uh, this one has nine years of guaranteed updates on it, which is unbelievably, uh, th this hardware will give out way before nine years because very little hardware used regularly does last for nine years. Pick up this Chromebook if you're looking for an advanced Chromebook uh, during this holiday shopping season. Absolutely. Um, I am tempted by the Google Mac speaker, which I mentioned on the show last time, uh, normally $400 down to $300. Now it's $150 right now. So that is my temptation. Will I be able to withstand the temptation? I need to work out our monthly budget because it is December. So, but that may be my Christmas present. I think that would be a lovely, lovely Christmas present. So, hey, and Peggy George is on. Yes, Peggy. We are here even with, with the Thanksgiving. So I didn't know Jason. I thought maybe he would be alone all day today. So he's, uh, tomorrow is his, is his solo day, but you know, we're just, uh, we're, we're, 
what what else are we going to do on a Wednesday night? You know, this is the routine. So this is Wednesday night. So we lost without it. Okay, and then um, I did want to mention one other thing that might get us into a bit of a rabbit hole, but a very interesting thing happened earlier this week. Ars Technica covered it on Monday, but Comcast, which is a 39-state-wide prominent interpret net provider in the United States, is going to start enforcing a 1.2 terabyte cap starting early 2021. And before uh, this uh, 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 evolution towards caps for all, they'd been experimenting with a 1.2 terabyte cap uh, as as uh, recently as a couple months ago, and I believe it was mostly in northeastern states where they were experimenting with that. And I'll, I'll put a link into the show notes or uh, into the, the, the document again tonight, but I learned more about this from, there's a really great uh, YouTube channel called Lon.TV. Lon Sybin is the gentleman's name. He does reviews of hardware. I like it so much, I actually uh, give him a, a Patreon uh, a payment every month because I trust his hardware reviews uh, above almost anyone else. And he talked about in some detail, he's a Comcast customer. This doesn't impact him because he is a business customer now that, that has two uh, a ter- or get to two terabit, two gigabit Ethernet, uh, uh, or two gigabit internet access down because he's buying a business service because of the amount of bandwidth he utilizes as a content creator. But they're going to start enforcing this 1.2 terabyte cap. And Lon's analysis, which was super interesting and I think largely correct, is that the the issue here is that so many families are abandoning traditional cable in order to utilize streaming services only, which means they're going to someone like a Comcast and saying that I'll pay, you know, 30, 40, 50, 80, 100, $120 a month for cable bandwidth, but I have no interest in your television package. And the idea here is that if you go that route, that's all good. But there's going to be a limit to your bandwidth, especially if you are downloading bandwidth intensive things like uh, 4K video. If you have a modern uh, television and the uh, service offers a 4K video, you're going to rip through that cap relatively quickly. And so um, I've been keeping an eye on our our download uh, uh, mounts in the last couple of months. And uh, Lon made the point that if you have kids at home that are engaged in distance learning, and that's all part of, of this process, that you might run into these caps pretty easily. And so I can tell you, I am uh, not a, a, a Comcast customer. We use Charter Spectrum here in Montana as my cable provider. Um, there's really not a lot of alternatives in Missoula. The other alternative is a DSL provider that in my neighborhood has literally a, uh, a, a speed cap that's about uh, about 15% of what I get from Spectrum, but I do keep an eye on that using my Google Wi-Fi app, and my wife and I have hit the, the, the terabyte down before in a given month, and that's because we don't have cable, and we stream a lot of television, and we're sitting on Zoom meetings all day long as part of our jobs and engaged in that process. So, Wes, I know you mentioned earlier that your provider also caps you, and um, if I'm going to describe your family, I think near the top of that list would be Tech Savvy. So, what 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 does that look like in the Friar household? Well, there must be some collaboration about these policies between you know major cable internet providers because Cox Communications, who who we have, 
um, has had on your bill and in your online account for years, this thing about a data cap, but it's never been enforced. And it's only been within the last few months, uh, really since COVID that they are enforcing it. And we actually had to step up to additional money because we were at a gig. And so, uh, it's been a while since I've logged in to see exactly how much more we're paying. It's the kind of thing where if you go ahead and pay for it in advance, it's cheaper than if you get penalty, you know, charges for, for overages. And so I think we're either 1.2 or 1.5. I think maybe we are 1.2 as well, but. You know, it's a sign of the times, but it's also a huge difference between cellular and landline Internet. Right. We have not had data caps historically in the United States for our home Internet. And I remember uh, one of Alexander's uh, classmates when he was in high school. You know, this was I think maybe even before LTE. Uh, but he was like, he had, he was consuming 30 gigs a month on his cell phone, on his cell phone plan. I was like, what the heck are you doing? Uh, and, and I mean, among other things, he was streaming a lot of video, but, um, yeah, we, we have not had all of us learning at home, uh, since August. We just, you know, our son has been here continuing to, to work remotely. Um, there's a, a good chance, I think, that we'll, we'll be remote, uh, at some point soon. You know, who knows? Maybe, maybe next week we're, we're planning on going back again after Thanksgiving. And we were in school, you know, all the way up till, you know, the end of the day on Friday. But, um, the, the data caps, I don't know where the advocacy is on that. If we've got folks coming out strongly to, to, to try to advocate, but it's, it's a big thing. Uh, we take it, you know, kind of for granted that there is a limit on the cell phone, but, but we haven't on the, the home internet. So like I said, we've had to, to increase what we're, we're paying for. And, you know, we, we say a lot of times at the end of the show and little, you know, MP3 compressed versions. I mean, Back in the day of older internet, uh, beginning of podcasting, um, you know, thinking mid 2000s, uh, you didn't have super fast, especially on the go internet. And so it was a really big deal to not have huge, huge podcasts as a, a comparison. And I'm not going to endorse all of his podcasts, but there have been some really, really good shows I've listened to on the Joe Rogan show. It's a not safe for work, you know, oftentimes language wise show, but he's had, you know, Elon Musk and some, you know, pretty fantastic people on there. You know, his podcasts, which are like a couple hours, but they're huge. They're hundreds and hundreds of megs. And so I end up compressing ours at uh, down to 32 kilobits per second, which audible and, and spoken word um, you know, audiobooks and stuff like that can be compressed even less, but you don't need the full, you know, fidelity MP3 that you'll need for, for music, certainly when you're doing the spoken word. So anyway, it, uh, it's important for us as podcasters to keep in mind that folks have lots of different connectivity, uh, speeds. And so that is why we, we provide the, the smaller MP3 as well as a very compressed version of the video v- version, which is just a little bit over a hundred megs, like between a hundred and 150 megs. Um, for an hour. So sign of the times, sad, um, but it also, you know, references digital divide. Here we are talking about, oh, going to have to increase to 1.5, you know, terabits a month. And there's plenty of folks that, you know, can't touch that because they just don't even have the high speed connectivity. So digital divide, still a huge issue and something that we do need to have strong advocacy for, uh, for our students and our communities. Absolutely. And I would also say too, that, 
um, at some point, I mean, in the same way, like I, I get that, that there, that there are competitive factors at play here. And if you look at that, that, then Lon Sivan analysis, one of the things that, that Lon talks about is that, 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 uh, you know, it, they, from his perception, they're going to want to try to get people to then sign up for cable to diminish than their 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 streaming of video. The bottom line, however, is that that assumes such an old TV model that if you are reliant on that, I think you might be making a, 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 what I would perceive to be a relatively huge mistake because it really does feel like that. Um, it really does feel like that that TV is not going to go back to that, right? And in fact, I spend a lot of my time personally um, uh, 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 seeking out new ways to stream TV and 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 kind of in awe of all the sources of television we have in in 2020. I think one of the real renaissances of television over the last 10 years has, of course, been some marquee series. I'm thinking about things like Breaking Bad and Mad Men that have brought television viewers back from the kind of cult of movies that had dominated. Uh, a drama for the past, you know, 50, 60, 70 years before that. But that the, I don't think we're going back on that. And there's just so many sources that aren't duplicated on cable. And then what I keep thinking about is the amount of YouTube that I watch, uh, which is obviously your know, documentary or nonfiction programming, generally speaking. But still, that's something that, that, that I don't have an alternative to. So we'll definitely see. But I think that's an interesting part of that process. Well, Absolutely. Wes, uh, where shall we head to next? Well, let's let's do a a positive one, but also you know interesting one. I, I drop this in under the miscellaneous category, which was always one of the favorites. China has launched a robotic rocket to the moon. It launched on Monday. I follow a bunch of astronauts, including Canadian Chris Hatfield, and he had tweeted this Science Magazine article, uh, which was. Uh, from November 19th, and I'll reference something that's in there in a minute, but the uh, more current articles from Monday that says, yes, indeed, the Chinese spacecraft has set off uh, to uh, the moon, and it's been more than 40 years since the Americans and the, the Soviets brought back lunar rocks and lunar soil, and the specifics of this are pretty amazing. This is not in the BBC article. It's in the – I need to drop both of these into our chat. Uh, it's in the Science Magazine article. Um, let me just ask you, Jason, how much lunar rock material, uh, lunar from the surface, uh, how much do you think was brought back? And do you think maybe, you know, comparable Soviet U.S. or, you know, any any wild guesses? This is a this is your 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 Jeopardy question. Well, I mean, just just knowing what that space race looked like, my guess is the Soviets beat us. Well, it's interesting. So this this is a big deal, right? We have not had a nation bring back material from the lunar surface, and this is huge for geology, not only of the of the moon, but also of the Earth and and the ways that we can understand better, you know, the the composition and, and the history. Uh, according to that Science Magazine article, <clears throat> this Chinese mission is going to, be, you know, the robot will be on the ground fourteen days on the moon. And it's going to have a robotic arm that's going to scoop up surface samples, and it's going to have a drill that's going to retrieve cores down to two meters. They are hoping to bring back two kilograms of material. And keep in mind, this is all, of course, robotic, and it's going to, you know, have to go back up and and return and and reenter the Earth's atmosphere. Two kilograms. The Soviet Union brought back uh, on three different missions 301 grams of lunar material. That's the, all? 
The Apollo missions, six different missions, brought back 380 kilograms. Wow. So the Chinese are looking to bring back two. We have 380 kilograms of, of lunar rock. So let's talk about how cool it is to mention this with kids, right? I'm going to be talking about this <laughs> next week, whether we're remote or face-to-face with Wonderlings, right? I mean, we're talking real, you know, space travel. I mean, this is robotic, but, you know, we the... the uh, the International Space Station has four new astronauts because the first fully operational Dragon crew module from SpaceX, you know, just just launched and, uh, you know, put those astronauts up there. It's it's an exciting time for space. And just isn't it incredible to think about? We have, you know, robotic classes that our middle schoolers, you know, will take and learning to do this stuff with Lego. But I mean, this is this is real robotics that, that we're doing. But I think the, the amounts there of uh, lunar material are just just kind yeah. of stunning. And I have touched the, the lunar rock, right? If you yeah. go to the Smithsonian, probably with COVID, it's, you know, no, you can't touch it now. Can't touch this. But they've got a, it's very smooth because it's had millions of hands on it. Yes. But, you know, it, it there's a there's a lunar rock there. And if you go to other places, I mean, that's a lot of material. So um, any anytime, prob- I don't know, I don't know, that'd be, that's an interesting trivia question. How many different, you know, museums and locations in the United States have uh, either visible to the public to just see or actually rock that you can touch, you know, that's from the lunar surface. So anyway, I think that stuff is fascinating. And it also belies with, huh, I've been listening to a, a really amazing podcast by Hardcore History. It's uh, Dan Carlin, and he has the most incredible series ever about Genghis Khan. I've been listening to Supernova in the East, which is about Japan. And this guy's podcasts are like three and four hours long. I mean, these are marathons. Uh, but anyway, Talking about Japan, the 20s and the 30s, and kind of how everything basically spun up and set up for World War II, it's really made me think about conversations we have here on the show about China and the United States, about 5G infrastructure, about, um, you know, the ways in which we've got got things happening, you know, in China uh, and, and, and in the United States in terms of military and Weapons and there's all the all these things. What are we gearing up for? You know, China is not a participant in the International Space Station. They're on their own, and so it's just a matter of time, probably, that we're going to see. You know, China send human beings and and maybe the first female. I don't know. We're we're on track to <clears throat> to send a woman to the moon uh, with NASA. So I don't know who will win that that particular race, but pretty cool stuff and definitely things we can connect to the classroom and you know point out to kids and talk about like we're, you know we need you to your country needs we we need you the world needs you to you know figure this kind of stuff out to be really smart with coding and robotics and you know the the things we've learned with the international space station there's a great maybe I'll find it uh, cuz it's on on Netflix we watched it it's a great documentary about water and i mean we've learned on the ISS how to completely recycle and be self-sustaining. I mean, we don't have to ship up bottled water to the ISS because they're able to yep. capture the water cycle. And folks, if they can do it on the ISS, they, we can actually do it down here too. There's a lot of things that we've learned and are continuing to learn. So I think that stuff is cool. We talk about some depressing stuff on the show. This is not depressing. <laughs> A pretty awesome yeah. headline, even though it has this overshadow of, you know, China-U.S. competition. Right, right. Yeah, just, yeah, our tech, ed, tech pod, ed, tech, ed tech podcast has become a little sour, and in part because, you know, we're a reflection of the society in which we live. <laughs> By the way, Space Race was one of my, well, actually, the Cold War in general, but the Space Race was one of my favorite things to talk about uh, when I was a history teacher, both in, when I taught European history and U.S. history because of the fascinating competition between uh, the two sides of the Cold War. 
Well, I'll throw in this link uh, as a as a geek of the week, but I'm you know going to do again. We we do trimesters, so I've got a second group of of students, and with my sixth graders, <clears throat> I did a conspiracy theory unit uh, where we looked at the moon landings, and you know there's a lot of folks, like over fifty percent of of folks in the UK from surveys that are year, a year or two old, you know, said, "Oh no, Stanley Kubrick, he totally faked all that, and NASA never landed, and all this." But um, you know, it's it's those are nice connections to uh, not only bring in coding technology, the need that we have uh, to develop our our savvy savviness with technology skills, design thinking, uh, engineering design, all that stuff, but also you know media literacy to be able to determine what voices we're going to trust and how are we going to hopefully avoid falling prey to conspiracy theories, which are as rampant as ever, maybe more rampant than they ever have been before. Yep, absolutely so. Okay, where to next, sir? Well, why don't we do a um, a media literacy article? So this is New York Times, and the article is titled Designed to Deceive, Do These People Look Real to You? And this was from November 21st. Um, the New York Times, as you may know, has some absolutely incredible cutting-edge layouts on some of their articles uh, and some stuff that just really pushes like, wow, look at that journalism. This is one of those articles. Because as you scroll down, you're going to see these faces morphing into, you know, all all different hairstyles and, and you know, genders and, and everything. But every one of these people is not real. They're all, you know, fake. And so we've talked on the show before about deep fakes, but this is a product of machine learning and AI. Um, and, and here's the opening paragraph. There are now businesses that sell fake people on the website generated.photos. You can buy a unique worry-free fake person for $2.99 or a thousand people for a thousand dollars. If you just need a couple of fake people for characters in a video game or to make your company website appear more diverse, you can get their photos for free on this person does not exist.com. Adjust their likeness as needed. Make them older, young or the ethnicity of your choosing. If you want your fake person animated, a company called rosebud.ai can do that and even make them talk. So absolutely incredible. And again, lenses for this. The content of this is important from a media literacy standpoint. Uh, we've been talking with kids and our, and not just kids, folks of all ages, you know, for years, I think about Photoshop, you know, Oh, remember, you know, um, what was it? Uh, um, Julia Roberts in pretty woman, you know, those weren't really her legs. She was Photoshopped on and, Everything that you see on a magazine, everybody's airbrushed and all that. We're, 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 we're somewhat familiar with that, even though I don't know how much kids have that in front of them thinking about, um, the fact that there's a lot of, of manipulation of, of media. But this idea that not only can pictures be entirely fabricated, but they can be animated and these videos can say whatever we want. And this isn't the deep fake, right? Where we're taking Barack Obama or, or Donald Trump or, you know, a lot of time it is a figure from, uh, you know, public service, uh, who, who has had a lot of video online, uh, and making them say whatever we want. That, that's the deep fake, but yeah, kind of, kind of mind blowing. So Jason, are you going to be, uh, you know, picking up a few, uh, extra faces and maybe refurbishing the NCCE, uh, you know, tech guru in residence website over the break? Um, no, but, uh, what's super, well, I, I just, I, I got stuck staring at those, uh, morphing faces on the New York Times page. You're right. That's a stunning media, uh, addition to that. Um, so it, it, it's interesting to me for a variety of reasons, but I guess, you know, it, one of the things that is just 
I, I guess a lesson, and I know we put this under media literacy here of, of, of 2020 is that there's just, there is no boundary to what legitimate web looks like, right? Because the bottom line is, is that there is no, it's, you know, it's not like 1998 where you could rely that a, a, a dot gov's government site and a dot com is a commercial site and a dot net and a dot org is different. And, you know, the rules have evolved dramatically in the last 20 years. And if anything, I, I think you need to be skeptical uh, about the things you're finding on the internet. And we've talked about in the past, a, a little bit that, you know, there are, there are obviously tools you can, you can adopt and, and discuss with your students. But you know, I've, I've mentioned it a dozen times. I'll, I, I, it, I feel duty bound to mention it again. This is the reason why the internet can't be perceived as a textbook. And in fact, my, um, uh, uh, analogy when I was first working with teachers, this was 22, 23, 21 years ago as a professional development folk, a uh, person in my district. One of the things I used to say is that everyone wants to make the internet into the world's largest library. It is that, but the better metaphor is it's the world's largest rummage sale because there is so much interesting stuff there, but a lot of crap. And then more importantly, a lot of things that may look like something, but it's really another thing. And, uh, this, you know, helps prove that in part because it would not be hard for me to create a fake profile, uh, utilizing a photo on this person does not exist.com. And then, you know, it, it gives the aura of, of reality. And by the way, one of the ways you can spot fakes, um, uh, uh, I think Richard Byrne is, is the, um, person that I, I picked this idea up from years ago and, and, and do this pretty regularly is that you can take that photo and use Google image search. You can upload a copy of that photo or find that photo where it came from for you, if it's stock photo, but that wouldn't exist with, uh, this person is not, uh, does not exist.com because it's a one-time generation. You refresh the page and it's a different photo regenerated by AI. And so that's something to keep in mind as well. Absolutely. Well, where should we go next? You've got a ton of great articles. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's pick up maybe some Google news. Uh, I will, uh, do our audience a favor and not just drool over Apple stuff, uh, for half an hour like we had the last couple weeks, but lots of interesting things going on in Google world. First and foremost, Chrome Unbox reports on November 20th that if you're a Google Meet school, they will now be supporting a hundred breakout rooms per call to kind of help with distance learning. Um, wow. that it's really interesting. We've talked a lot in the past about how how the Android versus uh, iPhone competition has really led to very similar feature sets amongst the two devices because they're in competition with one another and there tends to be a lot of crossover adoption of, of ideas witness the widgets that appeared in iOS 14. But the same thing is happening right now between Google Meet, Zoom, and Microsoft Teams, which I honestly have heard of very few districts that have done any of these other platforms other than those three. But Breakout Rooms was something that started in Zoom and in fact is a really cool feature. Uh, um, I have members of my family that are teaching elementary school in a mostly distance learning environment report. That's been critical for them to be able to break kids in and out of groups when they're doing live instruction via Zoom and now Google Meet. So 100 breakout rooms per call. 
And then I want to follow up uh, with a tweet that that uh, Wes had sent out. This was months ago where you were looking for a good Android app or strategy on Chromebooks to annotate PDFs. And the good news is, according to yesterday's edition, uh, I'm sorry, Monday's edition of Chrome Unboxed, is that Google is experimenting with their so-called media app, which is the app that opens up a video or a still image. Uh, they're going to add to that uh, in, in the PDF reader that's built into that, the ability to ink on PDFs as part of that that media app. So it's kind of like the file manager and the the uh, uh, Windows movie uh, and picture uh, viewer. This would be native to that. And so I think that is an incredibly awesome thing. Uh, it's a web app, by the way. It's not... Um, it's not something that, that lives natively on, uh, the, I'm sorry, it doesn't live in, in an Android app or a system app. It's something that's, that's actually web-based, which just gives you a sense of how powerful the web, uh, interfaces through HTML5 are, are becoming. But that is a great, uh, uh, piece of good news, uh, for the Chromebook faithful. And then um, I also wanted to uh, point out one other quick thing, too, that, that kind of duplicates something that we had talked about last week. Uh, when we were talking about Apple's new M1 chip laptops last week, we mentioned that, and, and my perception was that because of the release of new processors from places like MediaTek that will appear in Chromebooks in, in 2021, that Chromebooks may be following uh, 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 the... Apple trend to utilize ARM-based chips, which has not been a real successful strategy for them to this point. Like I mentioned last week that uh, uh, most of the ARM-based Chromebooks that have been released in the last 10 years have been a vast disappointment. Slow, good battery life, but really slow. But it looks like that Chromebooks are really going towards two directions. They're going to be starting to do AMD Ryzen chips, which are starting to appear in Chromebooks now. Um, they are not battery champs, but are a lot faster than their similarly priced Intel counterparts. And then, of course, the release of ARM-based chips, which should bring acceptable speed with pretty amazing battery life. And again, I'm probably headed towards a, a MacBook in early 2021 um, as, as part of my refresh. But I will say that if one of these speedy ARM processored uh, uh, Chromebooks pops up with, uh, the other thing I have to demand is eight gigs of RAM. I don't do a four gigabyte of RAM Chromebook. Um, that would be uh, a temptation for me as perhaps a side carry. Uh on the, um, <laughs> I lost the article. Um, it wasn't Google Meet. Shoot. The uh, PDF annotator? Yes, thank you. I'm sorry. I'm a little more, a little uh, distracted than I normally am. Um, that is so huge, so huge. We've got our sixth grade right now using iPads, and we've got styluses. And, you know, I was just helping our sixth grade math teacher uh, about a week ago really go through the procedures with Google Classroom of how with, like, Four total touches in classroom in the app. It's possible for students to open a PDF the teacher has assigned to them, annotate and write all over it, tap, turn it right back in. Not being able to do that on a Chromebook is a huge problem for me when I think about and and our school is late to the one-to-one -one game so you know relatively speaking uh, certainly among independent private schools and so um, this is going to be big we we picked up the Lenovo 300e Chromebooks a couple years ago and they have touch surface 
and they well, you can actually use a pencil as a stylus, but we really didn't have a lot of uptake on the, the use of that. And, and from math, especially, I think it's absolutely pivotal. So I am super stoked to hear this. And I'm, I'm especially happy that, you know, it's going to be something that's just browser based. Um, it still can be a little bit tricky as far as getting Google apps running, you know, in your domain with your school and depends on your IT department and yada, yada, yada. So the less technical requirements that we have to use, you know, tools like that, that are web tools, the better. Absolutely. So, and then, um, one other quick link that I threw into, uh, our links this week as well is that Chrome unboxed about every three or four months or so does kind of an overall random roundup of available Chromebooks. They perceive to be best at three different price points. If for whatever reason you're looking for a Chromebook right now and, uh, you might be buying one for your kids for Christmas or your district is shifting to remote learning and you want uh, the best available technology at a reasonable price, they have a great set of reviews available at three different price points. I would just mention that uh, there's going to be a lot of Chromebooks on sale for Black Friday, Cyber Monday. Some of them are amazing, like the one that I showed you uh, uh, earlier in the episode. But the bottom line is that a $120 Chromebook isn't going to provide a super great user experience. You might be able to do things in a specific application. So, for example, if it's just an email checking machine, a $100, $20 Chromebook is probably a really great bargain. But in a lot of other cases, the lack of the ability to multitask or keeping in mind that Chromebooks expire after five, six, seven, or nine years, that's something to keep in mind as well. Before we leave Chrome Unboxed and the topic of video conferencing, I'm uh, dropping this in right now. Zoom is offering free unlimited length calls for Thanksgiving Day. So if you have not set up your Thanksgiving video conference with loved ones, hop on Zoom. You don't even have to have an upgraded educator account to do an unlimited call. So, yeah, there you go. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, so I'm only going to do this for just a moment because we talked about this uh, probably ad nauseum in the, the past two weeks, but a couple quick Apple notes. I saw a really amazing review on Monday. Lisa, who runs Mobile Tech Review YouTube channel, one of my favorite uh, review sites along with Lawn.TV, put up her uh, Apple N1, both the MacBook Air and MacBook Pro review, and very balanced review uh, to give you a, a sense, though, that it does come out pretty positive. Positively, she says the M should stand for miracle in the chip because of its extraordinary speed and low power consumption. And then two other uh, things to share. First, there is a great database that exists online. This is 9to5Mac reports on November 20th about what's working in M1 Macs. And for whatever reason, if you have a, a specialized application, you are a Mac user and you're thinking about upgrading, I would strongly suggest taking a look there first. Lisa talks about that in her review. Lon Simon talks about that on his review. Uh, Linus Tech Tips talks about that on their review, that there are apps that either don't work at all or are pretty wonky. I've determined that because my workflow is so dramatically stuck on the internet, I don't use a lot of third-party apps that I personally would be fine, but you should definitely take a look at those databases. And then one kind of up-in-the-air question that a lot of people are trying to kind of work their way through, when 
Apple moved Macs from the PowerPC platform to the Intel platform, it gave them the ability to do something really interesting, which was you could dual boot Windows. And in essence, what that meant is that you could literally have both operating systems through something called Boot Camp, which is what I typically did on most of the, the Macs that I carried around uh, before I moved uh, elsewhere. And I didn't, I wasn't in, in, in the PC side that often, but it was enormously convenient that I had available both to me uh, in laptop form. Well, uh, there is an there is an ARM-based version of Windows that is available, but two things. First, it is directed towards a uh, more generic ARM processor, not the M1 processor. And secondly, as my understanding is that it's terrible and it has significant limitations. Uh, for example, it can't do what the Mac does, which is run all of its native applications uh, uh, through a translator uh, or an emulator that they call Rosetta 2. Uh, but Craig Federighi, Craig Federighi, who is the uh, product designer uh, at Apple, um, it, and it almost always speaks at these events, says that Windows could run natively on the on on these Macs, but it's really up to them uh, to do that. They can make tweaks to their software to make them uh, Windows compatible, but that's their call. It's not something, anything that uh, the PC, or I'm sorry, that the Mac can't do natively hardware-wise. So I guess you're a resident Mac guy, uh, Wes, and I, I saw you smiling and nodding during the boot camp uh, discussion. Uh, do you, I mean, do, do you ha- regularly have a, a, a Mac still that has boot camp uh, loaded up on it? So I don't know if I've said this publicly before, but like I, <laughs> I actually created a fictitious, you know, user, not with a picture from, you know, one of these websites. But anyway, I was uh, very reluctant to admit that I was doing things that, that, that Apple didn't like at one point, making a Hackintosh. I, I bought a Dell Mini nice. 10 and I literally had just booted that up because I've been resurrecting some old files. Claris works files. And so anyway, this, de- this small little purple, it's really cool. Um, d- you know, small Dell, like, you know, $400 computer or whatever. I was able to, um, you know, install a full version of, of OS 10. It's like OS 10.6 or eight or something like that. Um, I, I don't, I haven't ended up needing to do that that often. And I don't, now that I'm not tech director at all, I, I basically don't touch windows at all right now, uh, which I'm happy with, but, uh, it's, it's nice to be able to give you that flexibility and, and those options. What I used more, uh, for a while and the speed was, was at the point where, you know, it, it, it worked, um, was not boot camp where you were completely shutting down one system and getting into another, but it was an emulator. And so those have gone through various iterations where, you know, it's just basically a little window and, and you run windows inside your window, you know, on your Mac. Um, but I, you know, the way that software is interoperability, you know, working on the web, there's, there's really less need for that in my world than ever before. In the case of games, I know that's, that's a big deal. And, uh, our son who, you know, became a mechanical engineer and, you know, is a robotic engineer right now, you know, working, uh, working for a defense contractor for, for NASA. He, um, would, would, would boot into the Windows side to be able to do certain kinds of games that were only running on the Mac side. But anyway, it's, uh, I think that's, that's less, less of an issue, but Hey, if I was going to make a crystal ball prediction based upon what we've seen Microsoft do, we've talked about this in the show, Microsoft right now is a, let's, let's get it all to work on everything. You know, they are very, uh, platform agnostic, just wanting you to use their software, use their tools. And so I would, I would think Microsoft might do that, but Apple's not going to be, 
really excited about that. I mean, they're not going to push that. A- Apple is never like, oh, yay, you can do a Hackintosh. I mean, or that, I don't know. They're, that, that software, as far as the sold and licensed versions that, that they're, you know, of course, fine with, but it's not something they're promoting. They're not really wanting right. to, hey, guys, run Windows. I mean, that's, that's not something Apple's really wanting you to do. And it's evidence of your, your comment, Wes. They were out with a, a fully functional beta for Office on the N1 chip uh last week the the day after the M1s were consumers and so yeah I and and I I would say that you know uh I, I, kudos to Microsoft I still feel like it, a lot of times Microsoft will get kind of a, an interesting a radical idea and stick with it for a little while and then head vastly into another direction but they stayed very steadfast that they are uh cloud first and and more platform agnostic than they used to be because they want their stuff to work everywhere and not just primarily on their pieces so super interesting piece and then Wes do you want to cover that YouTube article yeah, I would actually. So this is from the conversation on uh November the what was it? Just a couple of days ago. Um, this is the last week. The the title of the article is Kids of oh, November twenty fourth. Kids as young as three years old think YouTube is better for learning than other types of video. And so this is a survey that um that that uh these folks at the conversation did, and they asked kids between ages of three to eight um, to look at images they told them came from YouTube, television, or just a researcher's smartphone, and then tell whether or not they believed that the person was real or not, and which video they would prefer to watch and they thought were the best to learn. And so um, TV was was lowest, um, and uh, YouTube was, well, actually, I guess YouTube kind of tied with TV, Um and they liked it more than the video that was just on the researcher's phone. So it says, regardless of age, children are more likely to view YouTube content as educational than either TV or smart recorded videos. We believe this might help them learn from educational content on the platform because they're already primed to find learning value in the videos. I mean, I know that my students are, you know, kids don't really know what to think when they're, teacher these days is is uh, very active uh, on social media. And so, um, you know, high school kids are a little more aware as far as what Twitter means, but my, my kids all know YouTube and we're talking about fifth and sixth grade and, and it's a, it's a big deal. Wow. Look, Dr. Fire has 1200 subscribers, which is not that many folks on YouTube, but, um, it is something, it's actually a forbidden huh, destination, uh, for some of our students as far as at home. Uh, and there's quite a bit of, uh, and, and, and some of this is certainly warranted and justified in terms of parent concerns over what students can find on YouTube. I mean, that's also true of the internet, right? It's not just, you know, YouTube that's going to have some objectionable content on it, but, uh, yeah, I thought that was interesting and wasn't something I would necessarily have, have thought of before. Um, I do think that, you know, video is the pencil of the 21st century and we all need to be as teachers and also encouraging our students to be extremely fluent, conversant and literate in the creation and sharing of video as well as the consumption of that and hopefully the savvy consumption of it. So, um, do you, are, are there alternatives to YouTube, uh, besides, you know, just like drive and OneDrive? What, what, it, what educationally, what, uh, and what do you guys do at the Academy, uh, for video content? Do you guys have your own platform for? for well, we do. Yeah. Um, it, and, and I, I don't want to get started on this rant because we'll be here until next Thanksgiving, but the, <laughs> I mean, I, I get, 
I get the challenge for YouTube from a bandwidth and much less from a content standpoint for IT directors and districts. But we have to spend an awful lot of money to get around uh, blocks on YouTube in local schools, because if my teachers could just utilize, you know, a, a you know, go- or I'm sorry, a Google suite based YouTube channel, as opposed to having to put video um, on an internal platform so that we know it's not getting blocked by content and, and bandwidth filters, it would make my life a lot easier. And it would literally, you know, save money for the people of the state of Montana. But we buy com- uh, a licensing to something called Kaltura which is a uh, it's actually there's a lot of Kaltura in education, but I think their primary uh, business is with uh, corporate video uh, providers. So people that are streaming television shows and that sort of thing in in a a kind of custom application way. And Kaltura is super great, but it costs money to host that. And we have uh, captioning turned on uh, to help our teachers be uh, Section 508 compliant so that our uh, website, our websites and and media assets are accessible, uh, but it's not as good as YouTube's engine. And so it takes a lot more fussing to make that a a realistic thing. And so, um, yeah, I... Uh, I was thinking kind of a deep thought earlier today, which may be a sense that I was daydreaming a little too much in my day job today. But, you know, um, uh, there's a lot of video being created. I think that Google is starting to say, you know, create a clear pattern towards charging for stuff. I can't see them necessarily turning YouTube into a charging station for viewers, but I can see them maybe being a little more um, choosy about uh, allowing for free uploads because, you know, uh, everything that hasn't been directly deleted off of YouTube by a provider since its existence for the last 15 years is still on YouTube. And there's tens of thousands of minutes of content that's uploaded every single minute, every single day of the year in an evolving way. So it may not be free forever, but man, is it sure a really sweet e-learning tool. And from a media literacy and weaponization of social media standpoint, you know, the, the rules that we've had about, yeah, anybody can create however many Twitter accounts you want and they don't have to be tied to anybody's real identity. Yeah. Anybody can upload as much YouTube content as you want, as long as it, you know, supposedly follows these community guidelines and things um, that that has led to some dramatic abuse and some huge impacts for uh, elections, governments, um, persecuted minorities in different countries. It's you know been devastating. So I, I think that will not only be something that YouTube will be looking at from a financial standpoint, that's something that regulators in the EU, in the United States and other places are looking at and will continue to look at is, you know, do we need to have some regulations and boundaries upon the ways these media companies operate um, in part because these unintended consequences or what we think are unintended consequences have been really devastating uh, for, for different groups. Hey, should we do the home bandwidth advice? Uh, yeah, let's do that part. And then uh, my guess is it will then be in uh, the top of the hour. So um, I, I talked to a lot of folks uh, working at home right now, whether it's, you know, one or uh, one person or two people, uh, adults in the family, plus kids maybe learning at home and, 
you know, there, I don't know anyone that's totally happy with their internet bandwidth, but one of the things that I've noticed over time, this includes with tech savvy people I work with, like members of my staff will report that their internet is funky and they don't know why, but one of the things that uh, you should be at least vaguely aware of as a tech savvy educator is how to troubleshoot basic speed needs uh, in regards to your home internet. Um, the first thing that um, uh, uh, I would also note to you is that uh, uh, if you have either cable internet at home or DSL internet at home, you should a minimum of once a month, I do it once a week, go into your router, right? The thing that, that your cable company or your, your internet provider gave you at home, unplug it and plug it back in again. Because one of the things that I, I know is absolutely true is when they run updates on that hardware, oftentimes they don't have a means. It's not an advanced enough computer to reset itself. And so it's waiting to, to install something, but you need to power down the router and, and power it back up again. But there's a really, really great article from Lifehacker. This is from uh, November 13th that how do you troubleshoot slow speeds on internet? And it's a really useful article. I thought it did a really good job of kind of describing the steps you should go through and starting to explain some of the numbers that you're seeing on that screen. And what I would strongly advise to you is that if you're not getting um, the um, speed that you're looking for, and especially if you, you should know what your advertised speed is, you should know from the company you're buying it from how much you should be getting. And if you're not getting that, you should absolutely uh, consider uh, uh, checking the speed on your internet. And one of the first things I do if my uh, partner in crime, Allison, uh, if she complains that she's having Zoom uh, call problems, if I'm running into problems, the first thing I do is check the speed. My favorite test for that is speedtest.net, which has been around forever and a day. There's an app you can download on your cell phone for that, and I test the speed. And if it's not... Um, close to my advertised speed, which is 400 down, 20 up. It's a little more complicated in the Nifer household because I've got some uh, hardware regulating pieces here uh, that's routing it around. But then you should call your company if that becomes a consistent problem. I'm also very lucky that I have Google Wi-Fi at home. There's a screen in the Google Wi-Fi uh, system that will show you Internet tests that have been completed by wi uh, Google Wi-Fi all on its own. I do monitor that as well. I clicked the speed test and that froze both of our videos. So if you're running a stream yard, you might not want to run a, a speed test right in the middle. When I looked at my That's Google awesome. and I, and I was going to do a, a network test that said, you know, that may affect it because you've prioritized your device. But anyway, yeah. And update your routers. And folks, if you have not bought a new router in the last, let's say four years, even two years, but you know, certainly three to four years, it is time. Get a yes. mesh router. Get a new one. Um, make sure that you're using the latest uh, Doxis, you know, uh, protocol that that your uh, cable company um, will have, and you know, get what you're paying for. Sometimes your cable company or your your tele telco, whatever, actually needs to come out and run new lines, you know, to your house. We've we've had that happen before, and actually, I need to follow up on this as well because we're we're paying to have a gig down and. We're, we're, we're not getting that. Uh, and, and there's, um, you know, some reasons for that. If you're at the spot where your internet comes into your house and you're testing it right there, you should absolutely be getting your full speed. So great tips there, Jason. Great. Thank you much. 
Um, I put a couple links and I'll just share these, uh, it, you know, in the show notes. But um, I did a video back in March called Protecting Yourself and Your Family Online, talking about, you know, two-step verification, passwords, uh, some things like that. Uh, uh, other ways that we can be protecting our families, uh, because the more we're using all this digital technology, obviously, the more is at stake. Um, I also put a couple links to a blog post about the Google Mesh uh, Wi-Fi router, uh, which is a little old. That's from March of 2019. But then this past summer in July, uh, I have a post called Faster Home Wi-Fi via Ethernet Backhaul. And, you know, you are a true geek if you're running your own Ethernet cable that you're crimping down. Um, but actually, I... I couldn't find my crimper, which is somewhere in my garage in a box. And so Lowe's Home Depot or whatever, um, they have a really nice in the home networking area, uh, you know, both uh, a, a not not super expensive crimper and then some special, you know, terminating uh, cables and whatever and able to put that together. So, yeah, that that's a little DIY, but, you know. It makes a huge, huge difference, especially if you've got a long distance between, you know, where your 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 Wi-Fi is or the the walls, whatever the, you know, specific details of your home in terms of attenuation and things like that that happen with the materials and metal and and whatever else is in the wall. It can be a huge, huge thing to actually run a cable, you know, through the attic, through the walls, and and get that back to your router. And so that's what we have back here by my son's bedroom and the office where I am here is. Uh, the Wi-Fi is plugged directly into the internet and it's made a huge speed improvement. Absolutely. Well, Wes, uh, we're pretty close to the top of the hour here. Is there anything else you'd like to chat about this week? Uh, no, I think we can go ahead and geek of the week it. Um, I'll go really quick. Uh, this is a nice tip that I learned from Seesaw on Twitter. Uh, the original source here is Heidi Nelter. And we probably have all used different websites to try and remove ads and comments and related videos. This is one of the slickest techniques. You simply add the uh, character dash or the hyphen uh, into the URL right after the T of YouTube. And what that does is redirects it so that ads, comments, and suggested videos are all removed. So that is pretty slick. And as we are in times of remote learning with students, sending videos home, uh, we encourage, don't require, but encourage all of our teachers to use a, um, uh, a, a safe YouTube, you know, link uh, sharing site. And so I'm going to be adding that. I'll put a link also to the module on our website that we have for uh, safe what do we call it? Safe link sharing. Um, there's a one that we had been using and my wife had used extensively called safe YouTube. They actually, I don't know why they didn't make their old domain not work, but because so many districts block everything that says YouTube, you know, they've changed their entire main domain from safe YouTube to like video.link or something. And they broke all of their old links that don't work. So every seesaw activity, every, Google Doc, every every page that had that old link didn't work. So you do run a risk if you're using especially a free, you know, URL shortener that that company may go away. And and if if all you had was that shortened, you know, version of the link, you might not readily be able to get back to the video. So I am in the habit on my wonder links on my uh, school website, usually of sharing both uh, a safe link version. I've tended to use viewpure.com more often. But then I'll also include a link to the original video because it does happen that something happens to that other website, you know, and I don't want to lose lose it. So good tips for practical, you know, remote learning and sharing video content with students. They still, of course, though, have to not have YouTube blocked in their location to be able to see the video. 
Great. Well, and I want to share, um, I, uh, because of, of the era of COVID, I'm running solo this weekend for Thanksgiving. And so I'm going to make it into kind of a nerd weekend that has nothing to do with my day job. So I'm going to back off a little bit of, of that stuff and work on some other, uh, kind of nerdy projects. And I ran into a really great website. It's called troypointtroypoint.com. I will tell you that a lot of this is about hacking things like Fire TV sticks, uh, Cody devices, some of that stuff can get into gray market stuff. So I'm not pointing Troy point out for that point, but he does have a really great guide on how to turn a Fire TV device into a retro gaming device. And there is legitimate places to buy things like Atari 2600, uh, NES, they call them ROMs. And again, gray market part of the area, but you can essentially turn a, and I bought a, 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 a Black Friday priced Fire TV Cube because it was way cheaper. I've been looking for a used one on eBay and wasn't able to acquire one at the price I was looking for. Um, it This was $25 under my target price of when I was looking for used, so I picked it up this week to utilize this weekend, and I bought a controller um, that looks like an old Super NES controller that attaches via Bluetooth. This is uh, uh, one by, called by 8-Bit Do. So I'm going to turn... Um, uh, my TV into an Atari 2600 NES, Super NES, Commodore 64 running, uh, machine this weekend. So, uh, I'm, uh, if I get to work, I'm probably going to brag about it on, on, uh, Twitter. So check me out there at Tech Savvy Teach. Did you finish the iPod project, by the way? I did. And, um, I see, in fact, it's right here. And I, I love this thing. Um, and, uh, I have, I, I bought a lot of parts and by the way, these have dramatically increased in price since I started doing it. I was buying, uh, used ones that were confirmed working for under $20. Most of them are running 40 or $50 now. Um, as this is the, the market has increased on this, but this is a 256 gigabyte, uh, iPod gen four. And I put a new battery in it, and it gets about seven hours of playing time on that new battery, and it sounds amazing. And there's just something about that interface with the iPod yes. that is very satisfying. That's a very cool project. So we'll, uh, I'll put a link to the show notes to uh, that Geek of the Week that you had a number of weeks ago where you talked about that project and resurrecting the old iPod. So, yay. See, Jason, that was just the harbinger of your return to the Apple world. I think as you were experiencing the iPod, you know, you, you got a taste of what, you know, Johnny Ive had brought to the, the Google, the uh, Apple Mojo. So we're excited for you to return to the, the Apple fold, but you know, I'm not thinking that you'll be ditching all the rest of your screen. So there'll be lots <laughs> of other perspectives on other platforms continuing to be shared from the Knifer household on the EdTech situation room. Yep, I like to nerd out. So, well, Wes, where where can people find you on the internet? Well, I am W Fryer on Twitter, speedofcreativity.org. I, I probably should write a blog post since I have a whole week off this week, and uh, I will. Um, continuing to share my media literacy um, lessons and um, resources on mdtech.cassidy.org. How about you, Dr. Neifer? I hear you've abandoned Twitter for Parlor. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, to be clear, I'm on Parlor because I, I the curiosity uh, was was getting me too much. But not, as it turns out, not a lot of ed tech over on the Parlor. Uh, you don't see a lot of folks. Even some of the, the louder voices I would expect on there, no comment on whom, didn't make it over to Parlor. But you can find me 
at Tech Savvy Teach on Twitter. I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education. Blog.ncc.org is my uh, contribution there, but soon enough, they will be opening up registration for the 2021 NCCE conference. It is all virtual this year, and uh, the goal will be a discounted price because we want to get people from across the nation jumping in on the conference. So details out soon at www.ncce.org. But this action here is not NCCE. It is the EdX Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast on Wednesday nights. We'd love it if you joined us live at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central, somewhere in the middle of the night if you happen to be in Europe. But if you can't join us live, although Peggy George wish that you will, Please go to our website, edtechsr.com, to look at show notes, download tiny audio versions, as Wes talked about earlier. You can find us wherever podcasts are uh, aggregated and on Facebook and YouTube is the other place where you can find us. Until next time, be safe, be savvy from our families to yours. A wonderful, happy Thanksgiving, and take the weekend off, teachers, because you've earned it. Stay safe out there, folks. <laughs>